Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the Voice First Roundtable, part of the podcast network Voice First FM. Our sponsors for this episode are Fourthcast, F-O-U-R-T-H-C-A-S-T. Fourthcast turns your podcast into a custom Alexa skill. Get started at fourthcast.com. And the Alexa Conference. The Alexa Conference is the annual gathering of Alexa developers and enthusiasts. Learn more and get registered at alexaconference.com. The purpose of the Voice First Roundtable is to examine the rising, uh, the emerging technology of Voice First Computing and how it is impacting individual lives uh, on a daily basis, how it's impacting industry on a daily basis, uh, and how it's impacting uh, every aspect of our world. And for the first episode of the Voice First Roundtable, it only made sense to go out and get who many consider the modern-day oracle of uh, not just voice-first technology, but technology in general, Brian Romley. Brian, say hello. Hello, Bradley. Thank you for having me here. That, uh, that was a great introduction. <laughs> thank you. The, no, yeah. No, thank you for uh, giving us some of your time and, and sharing some of your wisdom with us. So the very first question I want to start out with on this show is, what is voice-first technology? I just landed here from outer space. I don't know anything about anything. What is voice-first technology? Well, that's a great question. It's um, for a lot of people today. It's a loaded question because um, there's so much that is, gets attached to it from you know the most recent history. But I'll, I'll go back to why I wind up, uh, you know, naming this voice first. Uh, primarily, it's because Twitter only has 140 odd characters, ostensibly, and um, it's hard to communicate some of these ideas without concatenating it down to something smaller and I think voice first was fitting so voice first is really about this idea of how you build and how you interact from a developer standpoint how do you build things and from a, um, a general user standpoint how you interact with things and it, it, it sort of marries the idea of what came about in the 60s computer first technology uh, graphic user interface technology first uh, and then, of course, mobile first recently, and now uh, the voice first. And I really see these as revolutionarily uh, motivated changes. Uh, and we only tend to know them ex post facto. We, only, we always go backwards and we say, wow, that's when it really happened. I think the voice first revolution is going to be one of the few revolutions that most really astute observers can see happening in real time. And that can mean a lot of things for a lot of people. It means a lot of opportunity. It means that if you have ideas about what the future of computer interaction is going to look like voice mediated, you can participate in it because it's probably not been done yet. And um, Bradley, you're one of the uh, chief uh, initiators there with the Alexa conference. And, and you, you've, I'm sure, already seen an explosion of creativity around we have. the, the, the yeah. developers. Yeah, the Alexa conference uh, was really uh, a game changer for me personally, uh, seeing how everybody from uh, a barge company to healthcare uh, professionals to publishing professionals to all sorts of people are using the technology. It's uh, for the layman uh, who sees, you know, here's Amazon advertising 
the Echo on TV, or here's Siri, maybe we'll hit the button and try that, uh, and then never try it again. You know, like it's it. Uh, the layman really doesn't know what to think about it yet. But as you said, that for people who are paying attention and people who are um, uh, astute, uh, there's a lot of opportunity um, to take the technology and integrate it into what they're doing. Share a little bit about what you've done, because part of your a, a big part of your background is payment technology. Uh, share sort of about, uh, not from a broad standpoint, your background, share with us a little bit about your background and then how the voice first technology uh, that you've been involved with has interacted with payments. Well, that's a, that's a great question. It can go really deep. But I grew up in uh, the Princeton area of New Jersey during uh, the heyday of the Bell Laboratories and the pre-divestiture AT&T. That was a Silicon Valley at the time, uh, 70s and 80s. And I was very, very fortunate to have friends and family members that worked at either Bell Laboratories, AT&T, Western Electric, David Sarnoff Research Center of RCA, Princeton University Institute of Advanced Study. Uh, there was a triangle uh, between uh, you know Princeton, New Brunswick, and uh, South Jersey that this formed a whole lot of tech companies. And in that environment, it was very rich, um, obviously, communication technology. And Bell Laboratories started the beginnings of this. And at a very young age, I got to see some of the very first interactions of uh, speech recognition and speech synthesis. That motivated me to create my own little project. I had a Commodore 64, Commodore VIC-20, actually. And um, I was speaking to, I was at the Institute of Advanced Study there, uh, you know, again, as a kid, um, one of my friend's dad's worked there. And, and uh, one of the physicists turned to me and said, why don't you do it? And I'm like, I can't do that. And he goes, sure, why not? Here, uh, go to the library and go look up electronic chip manufacturers. Because I was already soldering and reading schematics and building circuits. And I already kind of built a speech synthesizer circuit based around what I thought the um, national semiconductor chip and the TI chips looked like. Anyway, I went to the library because there was no internet. And I got out one of these electronic books and I figured out... Um, how, uh, how to kind of contact one of these companies. And I asked for a sample. And that particular engineer that I got directed to fell pity to my sort of clueless, stuttering voice asking for a chip sample. I, you know, was, I think it was maybe 10 years old. I don't remember exactly. Uh, and uh, he sent out a couple of weeks later, two pallets full of chips. I mean, these were taken off the truck by... Uh, uh, by these forklifts. My mom freaked out. Long story short is I made one of the very first voice cartridges for the Commodore series, and that lead, led me up to meeting some of the executives. I basically left, after about a year or so doing that, two years, I left that to my friends. We, uh, I don't remember, it's all blur, maybe a few thousand uh, of these cartridges. Uh, my friends said few, many few thousands, but we used all the chips up and then some. And there were a lot of chips. Uh, but it always was in the back of my mind. So by 89, I had put together an 800-page manifesto on uh, what I generally just called voice. And it was the idea that at some convergent point in time, the proper technologies would, would come about, and that would be what we now call cloud computing, uh, Moore's Law, the increased ability of uh, memory and, and, and speed, analog to digital and digital to analog circuitry and all the software. 
and the beginnings of machine learning, artificial intelligence would converge. And I was saying that that would take place around 2025. I was off by a little bit. It actually took place effectively just about 2004. And we started seeing the very early stages of that. And that lead, leads us up to about 2013 when the Amazon Alexa arrived. So that's the voice line. The, the payments line is similar. I, I, I got into programming. I built one of the very early standalone point of sale systems by accident. I was a consultant and somebody at an auto parts store had asked me, can you make a database? And I go, yeah, there's one right off the shelf. I built it on, on top of uh, the DB uh, structure uh, of Ashton Tate. And uh, that was what was available at the time for the very first uh, IBM PCs. And I made a, a barcode reading system, um, you know, the whole thing. And um, at the same time, they asked me if I can integrate credit card acceptance. So I got the Verifone Zon Jr. and I black boxed it. What that basically means, even though I knew the chips inside of it, it was pretty easy. Rather than trying to reverse engineer it, I looked at the inputs and the outputs and I simulated it inside of software. And that later became uh, a very big prize. I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, that ultimately got acquired by Ashton Tate and they summarily did nothing with it. We had, you know, God, I built that company up to a few thousand customers, not only that auto parts store, but a lot of early point of sale customers. And, um, after I, I got out of that, I said, this payment thing is interesting because a lot of payment companies were contacting me and I they were like, I'd like to consult with you about, uh, you know, using your service and they were paying a lot of money. So uh, study of history, I always loved the idea of payments all the way down to Sumerian ring coin up to the most modern uh, things. Um, and I said, sure, uh, I'll, I'll work with you guys. And that's how I kind of got involved. And that led me to becoming a, uh, involved in the very early internet payments uh, systems. Uh, we built one of the very first payment gateways on the internet. Uh, we helped a company called Books A Million, who later inspired a company called Amazon, who later became a brief customer of ours for m more or less a couple of days. Uh, we kind of got outgrown very quickly because of our banking relationships. They, uh, the bank just simply did not want to support the projected volume that they were projecting, even though they weren't doing it yet. The projected volume had to be on the contract. And when they finally caught that, they said, nope, we can't do that. Because they were very scared in that, in that period of, um, of uh, you know, early technology. The internet was scary to them. They were like, you know, we had, had more or less say they were a mail order, which in a sense they were, but they're really the first uh, true uh, uh, big internet company. So that's that had influenced me early on. I built sales companies. I was fortunate to get a few of them in the Inc. 500. Didn't you don't ever really retire from these things uh, because you know you you build relationships over the years. And you know I, I, one company had you know over three thousand salespeople at one time. And um, you know I kind of dropped back from that sold some of my companies and got involved in technology. And that led me into a whole lot of consulting and a whole lot of advisements. And I uh, uh, unofficially and officially worked with a lot of the, you know, the, the Bay Area payment startups and uh, a lot of people that got involved in the early app economy. And I see these two trails in my life constantly converging. And now they're at that pinnacle point where uh, something that I call voice commerce is finally coming about. 
And uh, the idea of voice commerce is uh, typified in what we see in early Alexa interactions where if you've made a prior purchase with Alexa, you can just ask for a reorder. So there's Alexa going off in the background there. Sorry, folks. Um, <laughs> that happened throughout the Alexa conference, by the way. There was a <laughs> Isn't it funny, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so the... My, my, my thesis is very simple, and that is the, the backbone that built the web and the internet was advertising. Commerce was part of it, but advertising was what built Google. And my premise and thesis into the future is that advertising as we know it won't exist in a voice-first world where people are primarily interacting with their computers using their voice. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's... You know, I take a side division here, uh, jumping out of me because I'm kind of boring into the subject is voice is ambient. And what that really means is that when we're doing something visual, especially us uh, gentlemen, uh, and it's biological, we're, we, we really can't multitask. We can only task shift. And what that really means is something is suffering when we're doing that, especially in the visual realm. If you're reading something and somebody's trying to talk to you, you're really not doing a service to what you're reading and the person talking to you. You literally have to stop. Yet, in the background, you can have a, a radio, uh, you can have this podcast, you can be checking your email, and you can get the basic gist of what all of my words are saying. And you might want to go back, and maybe you won't, but maybe you will, on some of the points that maybe you didn't digest the first time. That's very hard to do when you're reading uh, long or even medium form uh, uh, you know, written publication. And so that's a very powerful aspect of what voice is about. It's also descript, uh, a descriptive type of interaction in its ambient medium rather than a referential. And what that means is, you know, we in a computer interaction, especially today, Google announced um, that twenty uh, percent of all their searches are now via voice. And last week, uh, inside their own app, uh, across their own all their platforms, it might even be higher. But that's a big revelation. It means that people are asking for searching or searching via a voice description, which is you know, not a referential description, which would be initially you start talking like you're a search engine search. And later on, you realize that you become conversational in that search. And last week, Google started talking about this in the IO conference about how the search terms that people are using when they're using their voice are becoming more like spoken interactions. And the very next level to that is to have the uh, the voice first system create a dialogue around that search, which will help hone down what they're really looking for. And I'll, there's, go ahead. Oh, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Oh, I was going to uh, wrap it up with a final thesis to kind of draw this home and then we can kind of dance around the idea. Sure. Uh, and that is, you know, if, if you really look at what we're doing today, we think every, every, every epoch, every generation, every, you know, front runner of technology believes that they're, they've reached the, the top of the mountain. It doesn't get any better than this. And of course, history always proves that wrong. Today, if you really look at what we've created in the Google-centric world of the web, is yes, Google is doing a, a whole lot about searching the greater web, coordinating that in a search result that is theoretically weighted by some grouping of 
you know, different endpoints and maybe some AI and machine learning by its relative weighting. But you might do a search and you have 19 million results. Google's giving you the first page and let's call that 10 results. Is that really what you want? Well, what that really means is you're the endpoint of Google because you must sift and sort to get to what you're looking for, whether that's buying something or whether it's finding a bit of information and whether or not you really want to get a feel for the information or a Wikipedia-like fact of it. It turns out in real research that if you're looking for information, you're probably looking more for a feel of what something is. Like, is that, is that a thing? Is, uh, you know, is it, will I die if I eat that? You know, just a, you want a quick reference and then you decide whether or not based on that result, whether you want to dive in quicker and deeper or not dive in at all. And all of this is cognitive load and mechanical load. The cognitive load is your mental load. You're sifting and sorting through Google search results. Now, to wrap this all into a little package, is that where we wanted to be? Is that the promise of what the computer was really about? Is having a whole lot of information, or let's call it data, and then because uh, data forms into information, with which forms into knowledge, which forms into insight, which forms into wisdom. What people ultimately want is insight knowledge and wisdom. They don't care about data. Data is disconnected dots. That's what we get when we get most search results. Sometimes we get, you know, we might get information that's connecting some of those dots. But what voice first is about is not the voice itself. It's the AI that's behind it. It's that when we ask a question, you know, my son just got bitten by a snake that's yellow with purple dots on its belly. What should I do? you can get a result back pretty quickly. It turns out that that's probably a harmless uh, snake. You know, maybe uh, it, it will be delivered in, well, that's a gardener sna snake, here's a picture. You know, whereas searching for that snake and sifting through it, the mechanical and cognitive load, especially if you're, you know, pretty upset, could be, you know, minutes. You know, well, somebody might say this, somebody might say that. What you really want is some insight. And Google doesn't really serve insight. Places like Quora, uh, Q-U-R-A, Q-U-O-R-A, a place where I spent a lot of my time over the last five years, um, they're trying to create a web that allows you to sort of have a modern Alexandria library uh, where you can get that insight and when you can get maybe some knowledge and some wisdom. But Google on its own isn't doing that. And, and the promise of voice-mediated AI is that we're getting close to that. For the common person, what that means is less time sifting and sorting and more time getting answers, buying things that you really want to buy and going to places where you really want to go. Does that make sense, brother? It does. It does. And you, uh, you, you, you segued perfectly because you, you wrote an article for Quora uh, last year that Forbes picked up in December uh, about uh, how voice-first technology will kill modern advertising as we know it. And uh, you, you just spoke a little bit, you, know, you, you, you spoke um, around it, but talk about uh, what search results um, will look like with, when we have context. You know, when you and I spoke the first time, you talked a lot about context. Yes. And, uh, it's something you obviously really understand. You, you opened my eyes to, to that word and what it means in, in, in the context of AI. 
uh, in voice-first technology. To talk about, uh, you know, you talked about how Google, you know, search results are going to change and, and how, you know, modern computing is going to shift, but uh, give us your, your vision on what uh, Google does for us with voice-first technology and context, uh, your vision, you, you, what your meaning of, your interpretation of context, you know, over the next two, three, five years. Absolutely. And, and a wonderful question. Wonderful question. And a really exciting uh, little space. Uh, I, I believe there are going to be Google class and Apple class opportunities just around this. And, and, uh, and we probably don't know the names of those companies because it's unlikely the legacy companies are going to be able to do these things because it represents self-disruption. And even in the tech world, it's very hard for them to disrupt themselves. In fact, a lot of the things I'm saying here are heretical. I have to warn the listener. This is not openly welcomed in the in most of the technology, you know, halls of technology in the Silicon Valley. A lot of the things I'm, I have been saying and I'm going to be saying. Context. What I really believe context is ultimately about is this construct I call a personal assistant. And I wrote a lot about this in the Multiplex magazine. It's a, I'm not a writer. I'm not a publisher, but I, I threw an app together and I put out a magazine because I want to kind of share this knowledge and I want to do it in an organized way. And I also didn't want to do it for free because I really think that when you pay a little bit, you know, a cup of coffee worth of information a month, that maybe you might actually do something actionable with it. It seems like free advice. People don't do anything. They pay a little bit for it. Maybe they do. And I just really want to see people do it. So, yes. And before, and, bef and if you're listening to this, pause the podcast right now. Go to readmultiplex.com. Uh, go on the app, the uh, Apple App Store, uh, buy Brian's app, uh, subscribe to it. Uh, it'll pay for itself many times over. Okay, Brian, keep going. Thank you so much. And my whole premise was to try to create a, sort of a scientific type of magazine. I don't hide the fact if you look at the covers, they look like Scientific American did in 1950. Because, I mean, I, Scientific American had such an impact on my life. That and PBS. But anyway, the personal assistant is... Not what we're seeing today. Um, in fact, I like using the 1975 computer uh, revolution uh, example. In 1975, the, the, the personal computer did not have a display. It barely had a keyboard. It had a teletype interface. And the easiest way you could do it for a hobbyist or a home user would be using switches on the front to painstakingly put in one machine code after another. And that might just be 25 minutes to add two numbers together. I mean, pocket calculator would run circles around it. That's what we're seeing with Alexa, Siri, Cortana, and everything else in the market right now, Google Now, uh, or Google Assistant. And that's not to put it down. They're generation one technologies uh, of the voice first revolution. I mean, speaker uh, recognition has been around for a while, but not to the level of the 89 to 99 percentile that we're seeing in some of these systems. Better recognition than most humans have with each other in normal conversations. Important to keep that in mind. But recognition of a word is not the intent extraction of what somebody is saying. Those are two different things. And AI mediates that. So when I talk about a personal assistant, what I really am talking about is building contextual awareness on the person that's using it. Now this contextual awareness is deep and it's also very worrisome when you understand it, but it's also potentially very grand when you think about its prospects for the individual and maybe humanity as a whole, but it's, 
Scary, like any other technology, can be used for good and evil. And I'll run down through it quite quickly if I can. Is imagine if you were born and everything you ever did, every word you've ever said, everything you've ever read, every place you've ever visited was recorded, not like a video recording, but an AI recording, understanding who was there, what was the context of those conversations, as best as it could from the day you were born, keep getting better and better as technology gets better, but the data set's always there, keeps getting analyzed. Now imagine now you're 40 years old and you wanna interact with this system. You would be talking to it. Of course you would be talking to it. That is, that is what evolution, nature, God has given us, and let's use the evolutionary track, for millions of years. Our vocal centers, our speech centers, and our hearing centers are hardwired into our brain such as that the very first thing that we're doing as we're born is we're recognizing our mom's voice outside of the womb. We already know what our mom's voice sounds like. The research is, is quite robust on this. We already, if we're blessed with hearing, we already know what our mom's voice sounds like because we've heard uh, of it for months, you know, nine, eight months, whatever. And you come out and the very first thing you're doing is your ears are telelocating mom's voice. Why is that important? It's hardwired into our centers of imagination, creativity, communication. Uh, all of the very powerful centers of the human brain, the thing that makes us human and not a machine. The computer was invented as a textual input. Imagine what we're doing when we're typing. We're, 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 we're moving our fingers, which has got to go into another part of our brain to try to figure, okay, I need to put the letter A down. Now I got to need to put the letter S down. I got to do this down. And you, you're slowly but surely you're, you're, you're creating these words. That's not the speech center. That's not the creative center. It's a mechanical center. And we've become accustomed to it because the computer was not smart enough to hear our voice and understand it. But let's go back into the story. So this, this computer AI system has been following you forever. Scary. But imagine the power it has in knowing you. And, and knowing what you like and dislike, knowing your schedule, being able to predict things that you would need and like, the news stories, right? We go out and we search for our news stories. We go out and whatever we do on the internet, uh, wh who we're going to like on Facebook today, what cat picture, or, you know, whatever, baby picture. All of these things are going to be presented to us in real time. So that's the, one of the first level orders. Second level orders are, are maybe related to commerce. Like today you can, at least the AI that I've created for myself, I can say uh, to my AI system and, and one of my systems I called Al, I call Alfred uh, and uh, I used to call it Albert, but my wife thinks I'm a little too transfixed with Albert Einstein. So it's Alfred. So I can say, Alfred, order me some socks. That's it. And that's a voice commerce transaction. Now, Alfred already knows by prior behavior, by tracking what I've ordered before I've ever asked it a question. Because uh, my AI has been tracking me for a better part of five years. Knows all of my major commerce purchases and my minor commerce purchases to the, about the 50 percentile. Now most of it to the 90 percentile because it just was hard to track these things offline. But I found ways to do it effectively. So Alfred can go to my, my knowledge graph and say, oh, this kind of socks this guy always, always orders. My God, he always plaid socks or white socks or whatever. And will present if i decide to see and look at it present an order for me here how does this look 
And after a while, once something knows you, imagine your significant other or your kids, after they know you for a while, do you need to see it? Like if the wife uh, or the husband or whoever's cooking that night says, hey, we're going to have, uh, you know, Southwest uh, cuisine tonight. Well, can I see a picture of it? Can I get a listing? Can I get an ingredient list? BS. You're not doing that. So those of us that believe we need to see it all to make an intelligent decision about a commerce decision doesn't really observe reality in their own life. We don't need to look at everything. Maybe once or twice after that, hey, get me some Southwest cuisine, get it to me fast. You can literally make that an order. That's an order, right? You've now, in my system, I can do that. You know, and, and, and I'm just, uh, I'm an okay coder. I'm actually an ugly coder. I'm an okay solderer. I s slap this stuff together because I want to see it come about. I test it. It works, and I move on to other things. Sometimes I massage it better, you know. But that's all I've been doing in this research, and I can make a claim like that. I can I can go in and I can say, uh, I'm hungry for a pizza. Order a pizza. And sometimes I don't even need to put a wake word, and that would be like Alexa, you know, Siri or Google. Uh, in the future, we're not even going to have wake words. There will be contextual awareness that we're talking to these systems. So the context, where does it lead us? Well. The interesting part is it will become an adjunct to your own memory in, in, in a pleasant way if it's done the right way. If it's done the wrong way, it can be annoying, and ultimately we're not going to buy those things, so the right way will prevail. But then it also has a downside, and it will only briefly touch a downside, and maybe in future broadcasts will go into it because I don't want to be down in the downside because you're going to read a whole lot about it in the future anyway and you're going to see science fiction movies about it the downside is who owns my context will you want that in a cloud will you want everything you've ever done since you were born because that's going to happen in our lifetime in the cloud for somebody to sell advertising back to you and again this is not an anti-google rant and don't get me wrong i'm just saying that i don't believe that that is what humanity is going to want nor do I want that world. So the next question is, where is that going to be harbored? Well, I just gave you one of the Apple opportunities of Apple class opportunities of this epoch. Somebody's going to solve that to a meaningful level. And where is that data going to be harbored? Now, not because I jump around a lot. I don't want to get confusing here. There is some context to Siri and Alexa. They kind of know a little bit about you, but not very much. But they don't have, they have amnesia too. They don't even know what you said 10 minutes ago. So there's no continuity. So context and continuity are very important. And then the final tentpole of this sort of pyramid is proactivity. Proactivity is when it is talking to you without you talking to it first. And some may call this a push notification. That's a crude, crude way of saying it because what we know is push notifications and, and what I'm already doing and what I see coming is going to be, this is an example. You know, Bob is in town today and, um, you know, it looks like his schedule is open for a few minutes. And if you can, if you can be in, um, you know, Wilshire Boulevard uh, at, uh, you know, two o'clock, you might be able to run into Bob. You want me to let Bob's assistant know? Yes. Yes, I do. Bob's assistant comes back, and maybe you talk to the assistant. Maybe your two assistants talk to each other, and maybe they actually audibly talk to each other. This is where it gets very interesting. 
if an, if a personal assistant is really good at understanding human language, then human language becomes the API. And the API is the nerd way of saying uh, an entryway into computer software, meaning that somebody doesn't even need to necessarily write code, that these systems will ultimately use what we've already used for thousands of years, vocal communication. And they might literally call up each other and say, Brian would like to meet with Bob. Okay, well, Bob, Bob's in town. What's a good time? And they mediate a schedule. Here we are in 2017. And Bradley, you and I know this because we've tried to put some meetings together. We're bouncing back and forth. What's a good time? I don't, this is work for you now. That works better. In the future, that's all gone. And again, a lot of people have tried to attack this problem. Anybody listening to me? Is it working? Have you heard about it? Most people listening to me haven't heard about it and it's not really working. This sort of scheduling is one of those low-hanging fruits on the tree that will start to be solved. But calling it scheduling is sort of ridiculous. What it's going to be is going to be somebody who very much forms almost like that 1950s example of a boss in an office, and I don't want to get sexist or anything like that, and the boss can be female or male, that has this great secretarial pool and they're just doing everything. And the boss just sits there and everything gets done. That's what we're talking about. Typing, sending out messages, interacting to the world. It's productivity, but it's more so because it has context on you. Does that yeah, kind of well, make sense? It does. And part of, uh, you know, any good secretary uh, or, or assistant or whatever words you want to use, uh, anybody uh, helping with that in an office environment or any environment knows, uh, you know, uses that context. You know, if, if it's... Um, you, your, your secretary or your assistant knows uh, you might say any number of things, but you really don't want to meet with that person. Exactly. And you you might say, oh, yeah, we'll get together next month. And you didn't mean a word of that. And your assistant uh, knows you didn't mean a word of that because uh, he or she has known you uh, for a long time. And, exactly. Uh, and imagine yeah, but, a significant other too, right? We we talk in in a what I call an inverse prolex, and and that is a shortening of the speech where you can actually interact with somebody that you've known for a long time and just say a few words, or or maybe not even a word. And again, you know, this is voice first, but these systems will have visual systems that will allow you to see what uh, what that person's facial features are. Apple acquired a company called Emotient which is, my gosh, they have incredible technology that can read the micro-movements in your face uh, between one emotional state to another to kind of almost extract what some people feel is truth or falsehood. Now, I'm not going to get down that road too far, but the, uh, the idea is Apple is already down that path. And that helps this AI system understand what your true intents really are. And it's, it's funny because as the computer gets more wisdom, there is a potential of more fear, but on the other side of it, there's more utility. So with all of this will come that, just like a, a personal assistant in the office. If you've had the same personal assistant for 30, 40 years, I mean, um, uh, I, I've met some people who've had that uh, type of scenario. They would be utterly helpless if that personal assistant left, if they just, <laughs> They wouldn't know how to do anything. And I, some of us in marriages know what that's like. If, if my wife uh, was unable to do a few things, I literally would be frozen 
because of the tremendous amount of knowledge set that they have. And, and we take that for granted. And I got to say, a lot of guys take this stuff for, for granted around the domestic uh, uh, space. And, and a lot of people in, in, in the business world take for granted um, Warren Buffett. Uh, if you go to one of the most prolific investors and, and, and uh, minds, Warren Buffett says he would be absolutely helpless without his assistant and literally probably more valuable than he is. And, and so I'm not saying that we're going to replace humanity and human beings. I'm not saying you're going to fall in love with your AI and all that kind of stuff. I'll leave that for science fiction writers. But what I am saying is that once deep context is understood about you and you can have a conversation, a dialogue, with these systems. And I'm already doing that with the research that I'm doing. Because uh, right now they're Q&A systems, right? A lot of people are bummed out with Alexa and Siri and Cortana because you ask a question, you get an answer. It drops. Then there's amnesia. It doesn't remember you asked this, that question before. It has no prior context on you. And it doesn't have that continuity. With the next generation, and we'll probably start seeing it with Apple's release of Siri uh, this new Siri that's going to come out in um, after the uh, Worldwide Developer Conference this June, coming up very soon. We'll see the beginnings of it and the next generations of the Google system and, and the, the Viv uh, platform that Samsung acquired. When you start seeing those systems and you have continuity between conversations where, you know, sometimes it's going to be a little funny. Well, you asked that question um, yesterday. And, you know, you, maybe you don't want that. So personality types are going to play into it. And a lot of my research, the last issue of the Multiplex magazine, I get into this human-computer interaction that none of the data scientists and none of the researchers in AI are currently doing. I'm approaching it from a completely different standpoint. Uh, the Myers-Briggs test, et cetera. It's a very unique uh, system I've developed, and I'm already applying it. And that is, the AI gets to understand your personality type. And anybody who's worked in business knows that the Myers-Briggs test is used for better or for worse to try to understand compatibility with employees and sometimes compatibility with people. Sometimes it's, it's right and sometimes it's wrong, but it's a good base point to try to understand how do I want to interact with this, with this person? Now, if your AI uses Myers-Briggs systems plus other proprietary systems, I don't want to just say I'm using that. Um, all of a sudden it will understand that you want that humor Hey, uh, Brian, you asked that question yesterday. You're really interested in this subject because I can dive in and, and give a report for you and, and, and have it ready for you. Or it could be re rephrasing the same thing it said yesterday in a different way because maybe you didn't get it. See, a really intelligent system is, is going to hopefully truly be your friend, whatever that really means as a reflection back to you. And it might mean that you just didn't get it. And some people are slow learners, and that's fine. And these things are going to be endlessly patient and endlessly faithful if they're designed the right way. And, um, you know, I think in our conversation, I represented an idea of what would it be like um, for this AI to be left behind, right? Because someday we're all going to leave this, uh, this plane. And imagine this AI has been with you from the moment you were born to the moment you passed on. What what would that represent to prosperity and, 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 and what would it represent to posterity and what would it represent for history? Imagine, if you will, if Einstein had lived in an epoch where the AI was with him all the time. Now, of course, you don't want to dive into somebody's private and personal life, and there would be protections to, to, to block that. And I would say very large protections. You don't want to release things that you don't want to release. But imagine being able to consult a system.
had the same context as that person. It won't be that person. Have no doubts about it. It will not be that person. I'm not saying you're going to replace a human being. What I'm saying is you'll be able to get the context of that human based upon their prior experiences, and you'll be able to get at least a fuzzy feel about what their insights of today would be based on what they had experienced in the past. And here's where it gets really interesting, Bradley. Imagine if it doesn't stop. Imagine if Einstein's insights continued on with a modern context and it continued on and continued on. Is that something valuable? I say it is. Maybe for all it, of us, maybe for some of us. I'm not sure. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's, it, it's exactly why uh, I wanted to bring you on the show. Uh, you, <laughs> you have an, a, a unique understanding of a lot of different issues related to technology related to you touched on ethics uh you touched on a lot of different topics and just a fabulous uh beginning uh for this new show uh that, that's such a, a central part of our uh, voice first fm brian uh we're gonna wrap up we greatly appreciate your time uh tell us before we go if someone wants to reach out to you uh, for consulting work, uh, for any reason, how do they get a hold of you? Well, I, I tell anybody to reach out to me. I answer every response. So I don't care who you are. I, I, I really want to hear what you have to say. You can go to readmultiplex.com, R-E-A-D, uh, multiplex, M-U-L-T-I-P-L-E-X.com, and you'll find a response uh, system there. It's all me. I built the app. I built the publication. It's pretty much, well, it is actually just me writing it. So at this point, maybe when you hear this 10 years from now, it'll be something else. I don't know. But uh, uh, I want to hear from you uh, and get the app. That's another way to communicate. If you become a subscriber inside the subscription area, I have uh, you know a lot of things planned for interactions within groups of individuals. I want to try to bring about connections between a lot of different uh intellectual groups, not just the data scientists, but the people from humanities, people from, from publishing, people from all different parts of the world, to try to see how this is going to shape our future and to have a hand in shaping it. This is so important. If you're listening to both of us, you can have a hand in shaping it. It's happening right now. And, and I go think, subscribe to Multiplex. Don't wait until your AI companion tells you that you should have done that a long time it. ago. Yeah, and, and I got to say this. What you're doing, Bradley, and this whole uh, voice-first uh, uh, you know, uh, enterprise that you're building is phenomenal. And I, and I urge everybody to, um, you know, I, I don't want to speak out of class, but Bradley's building something phenomenal here. There's going to be a lot of things that you can start learning from. And I think there's going to be a lot of, um, I'm just one voice of a major fugue of voices that are out there that are going to be talking to you about this subject. So follow what Bradley's doing. Follow this uh, broadcast. And um, we'd love to hear from you. And, and attend the next Alexa event. Uh, it's not too early to start uh, planning. When's that coming okay. about? It's in January. Uh, it's 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 in January, and then we'll have a a, a bigger voice first conference. We'll be announcing uh, for 2018 as well. But uh, I'm excited. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I am too, Brian. This is uh, just the beginning of of uh, our engaging you on Voice First FM. Thank you so much for the time, and un until next time.